Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning. I just want to start by saying just such a, an honor and a privilege to be able to, to come up and, and uh, share God's heart, share the Word of God with you. Um, I do want to start out with uh, something a little, well, maybe heavy. Um, you know, there's been some, some controversial things that, um, and, and I, I think we, we need to um, know where people stand on this. So I, I am going to ask for a show of hands and uh, know this, that it, it really does divide people and it, it'll divide families, but um, at least we know where you'll stand. Um, who was really happy about the snow that came in. Mm-hmm. Okay, just so we know who the evil people are. We will allow you to stay. You can be part of our fellowship, and that's, that's okay. That's fine. We're just not happy about it. We're not thrilled. So welcome, though. Uh, snow, Mageddon. Gross. Gross. Okay, just so you guys get to raise your hands. Who hated the snow coming in? Come on. Uh, you don't want any? Yes. Thank you. We got some even more exuberance there. Now you see how, much, how passionate we are about this. We care. We care. But this, is, uh, this week is episode two. It is part two of our Esther series. And you're going to find this book of Esther. It's going to be in the Old Testament. And if you, if you were to open your Bible up in the middle, you're going to find the book of Psalm. You're going to want to move left a book. It's going to be Job. You're going to go further to the left, and you're going to find yourself in Esther. Or if you're on a phone, none of that matters. So just open up to Esther. Um, now, I, I will say I wasn't overly thrilled about the Esther series when we were talking about it. I'm like, okay, Esther, hmm. You know, I like it, but, you know, for such a time as this, I'm like, okay, what are we, what are we going to be able to pull from a series, like a message on Esther? Okay, you know, I'm not mad about her. I'm just, you know, like what, what, what are we pulling from, from Esther for a series? And then we start studying this book, and it's like, oh, my gosh. God, you are moving, and you are working, and it's, it's, you really begin to get, to, to get excited about this. So uh, we contend to... Um, moralize some of the characters, and I think uh, Jeff did an amazing job last week uh, talking a little bit about that, but uh, they're all flawed. Every single one of the characters are flawed, so we really can't tell our, our teenage daughters to, to look up to Esther, right? We really can't tell them to look up to, to, to Vashti or Mordecai. There's, there's some things that you can pull out of there, but we can't more, really moralize these characters. They're all flawed, but God seems to still work through imperfect people, and all the imperfect people in the room said, come on, somebody. We're in light company. God likes to work through imperfect people. Um, and all of us um, at times can feel, uh, as we see in the book of Esther, God's not mentioned. He's not on a single page as we read through the story. We didn't see it in chapters 1 and 2. We're not going to see him here in chapter 3 and we see the absence of God, and it's like sometimes we feel that in our own lives. God, where are you? 
Are you, are you ghosting me? Like, God, what, what happened? Even those of us that have made a decision, we, we're, we've made a decision for Christ and we are all in on God, we still at times feel the absence of God in our lives. Am I the only one? But God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is omnipresent. Big theological word, meaning he's everywhere present all the time. Right? He is omnipotent. It means he, he is powerful. He is all-powerful. And this is the God. This is the God that his eyes are on you. He sees you. And we pull these things, these themes, out of Esther. He's very present. And he's very active. And so let's pick up where we left off last week in chapter Three, remember, this takes place far away from the promised land, right? The, the setting is this city of, of Susa. This is the winter capital of that Persian empire where Ahasuerus, better known by his Greek name, Xerxes, he's the king of this Persian empire. And he reigns over virtually everything, right? This is pretty much the, the known world. So he's reigning over everyone in this known world. And years earlier, his grandfather, King Cyrus, he had granted freedom to the Jewish people. They were in exile in Babylon, and they, he, they, he grants them freedom. So this Jewish people, some of them decide to return to their homeland, and some of them are, are rebuilding the temple, and they're rebuilding their lives, and some return, but others would remain, and, we, and they would build these Jewish communities and, and throughout the Persian Empire. And Esther and Mordecai, some of the main characters in Esther, would be in that number. And we learned that Esther's parents have died and that, that Mordecai, her cousin, is now raising her, right? He's raising her as his daughter and this order and this edict from Xerxes is proclaimed that all the beautiful women, all the, the young virgins are to be gathered and a new queen is to be selected. All right, Vashti, she's the previous queen. She'd refused the command of the king and was removed for her insolence. How dare she? So this is all just, a, it's, it's a setup, and we see God making the ultimate move. If you will hang with us in the coming weeks, we're beginning, we begin this week to feel even more of the tension. It's about to get real intense after this chapter. So we continue to see that God doesn't show up on the text, but he is indeed on every page. He is present. He is working. He's not mentioned by anyone in the narrative but he can be seen at work throughout. So the hiddenness of God is not the absence of God. The hiddenness of God does not mean his absence. So in your story and in mine, sometimes God feels like he's as close as my skin. He's so powerful. He's real. He's acutely present. Maybe you felt that in worship today. He was just, he's there. He's close. He's real. I feel his presence. But sometimes... Often, he seems hidden. He seems far away. It feels as though he's absent. But hear me again, the, the hiddenness of God is not the absence of God. When my, uh, when my kids, they were learning to crawl, you know, five, six months old, they, um, I think that's when they begin to crawl. I, I forget. There's like six of them. They're older now. Just had my, my uh, third one become a teenager so we're, we've got three teenagers in the house now. Uh, but when they're beginning begin to crawl, I would take them. I don't know if, if you do this. Let me know if I'm just mean. But take them and I would put them all the way across the room. And then I would go to the other side of the room, right? And sometimes I'd get down on my hands and knees, which I'm not going to do for you this morning because you want to hear the rest of the sermon, <laughs> right? 
uh, and I, was, I would get down and I would say, come on, come to daddy. You know, and we'd have a competition. Is you going to come to mommy? They're going to come to daddy. What's going to happen? And how much joy to see my kids struggle <laughs> and grope and crawl and, and pull and wiggle, right? It was, it was joy to see them reach after me, try to come near me. And I've always seen this as just that, uh, that pressing towards, that, that reminder that I, I need to press into God. If God feels absent, that, that's the more that I need to press into him because he's there. Would I be the one who would say, okay, I am, this is groping, this is struggling, this is pain, this is, this is something, an area that I haven't been to before, but I, I'm growing in it and I am pressing towards you, God. It's always been that reminder to teach me to stretch, to find him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The hiddenness of God is not the absence of God. So here we are, Xerxes and the Persian Empire, powerful and it's all-encompassing. Right, we talked, this is essentially the entire world. The empire is inescapable, as Jeff said last week. It's invincible. And yet, as we saw, it's ultimately laughable. That all-powerful king Xerxes can't control a human's will. Right, Queen, queen Vashti comes and tells him, no. And she's removed as queen. What a contrast to, to the almighty God who actually is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere present. And yet he, he invites us into a relationship. He doesn't demand. He invites. Should we reject him? He continues to pursue. He's ready to meet us as soon as we turn towards him. He's right there. See, there have been so many coincidences already here in the first two chapters. Of Esther, Vasti, she just happens to be removed, opening the door for Esther to be queen. Right? We read at the end of chapter two that Mordecai, he just happens to be in the right place at the right time, and he overhears the plot to kill the king. Right? This is gonna come into play in the following weeks, but we're gonna see throughout this story all these dinks, these coincidences that, that just seem to happen. Anybody else use dinks like it? All right. I'm sure you, you can think of those quinky dinks, those coincidences that, that have played out in your own life. If I, if I hadn't been there at this place at this time, if I hadn't went this direction instead of that direction, I wouldn't have had the opportunity that I now have. Our God is working even when we don't see it, which I didn't, I didn't work with TJ on that, on that worship set list. God just sometimes does that. Even when he, we don't see it, he's, he's working, he's moving. So I knew uh, at a young age, I was called into pastoral ministry, and, and when given the opportunity, I chose to graduate early. I graduated a year early in high school, and I went straight to Bible college in, in Virginia. I was living in Iowa. And Jen, my wife, she wouldn't show up until my sophomore year. And I can guarantee you that if Jen had showed up my freshman year, we would not be married. The Lord knew, right? Uh, I could, I could have chosen a different school, right? I, I, could, have, I could have waited. There, there are, were pastors and churches that I could have went and, and served under. I had the opportunity to go and intern. And, but the, uh, a series of dinks led me to the most significant thing that I've witnessed in my life and my ministry, 
It led me to my wife, Jen, and I wish she was in the room so I would get the points. But I believe, I believe he was working in those decisions. So here we are in chapter three, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, he, he promotes this Haman to, to be second in the empire. He's the head of the government. He's the grand vizier. He's the prime minister. And the author is sure to also note that Haman is an Agagite. So let's pick it up in, in, the, in the first verse. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. See, when you're reading these, nobody really knows how to pronounce it. So you can pronounce it however you want. And it seems right. And he advanced him and, and set his, his throne above all the officials who were with him. So the tension is thick right now for the Jewish readers. Not, not so much for us. Like Haman, the Agagite, son of whoever. Hiawatha, I don't know, like, like it doesn't really, doesn't really land with us. But to the Jewish readers, this connects Haman to the Moabites, to the Amalekites, more specifically to Agag. Right? Agag was the Amalekite king that was defeated by the Israelite king, Saul. And shortly after, Agag would be killed by Samuel, the prophet. See, this sets up to mirror the conflict that these two have had. It dates back all the way to the Exodus when, when they, the Amalekites, would oppose the people of God coming up out of Egypt. And it would be the Amalekites that Joshua fights against. And the nickname Agagite has become the chosen name given to enemies of the Jewish people. Even today, the Palestinians are referred to often as Agagites. The, they, they referred to the Romans in the time of, of Jesus as Agagites. They're, they're enemies of, of God's people. And Remember, the author here was sure to point out the heritage of Mordecai as well in, in the previous chapter. We learned that he was a Benjaminite, and he was linked to Kish. It's specifically listed as his lineage, and that is the same name as King Saul's father, Kish. So the point here is not lost on that Jewish reader. This Saul and this Agag, Jews versus the Amalekites, all the king's servants, which would include Mordecai, we're commanded now in chapter three to bow down, to pay homage. As Haman, the second in command, passes by, Mordecai refuses. He tells them that he's a Jew. The very thing that he told Esther, get this, not to say. Don't tell him you're a Jew. And yet here, here Mordecai is saying, mm, not that Agagite. I'm not, I'm not bowing to him. He reveals his Jewish identity. And this was not bowing to, to worship Haman, this, was, this wasn't that Mordecai wasn't one to, to honor those things. He, he clearly was a servant of the king, so he, he had to have bowed to the king. It was because Haman was an Agagite. Haman was an Amalekite. Mordecai would certainly bow before the king, but not before Haman. And day after day, those other servants would, would confront Mordecai. Each day, he's not bowing, and, and yet he, he's not going to bow. And they, they would confront him, and they would, they would say, why aren't you paying homage why aren't you bowing? And he's like, we, we, don't, we don't talk about Haman. No, no. Got some, got some parents or Disney fans in the room. I see, we don't talk about Haman. So after a while, they bring the news to Haman. Haman has no clue. He hadn't even recognized. The, tech, text is, is sure, the author is sure to point out that Haman has no clue that Mordecai is not bowing. He's not incensed by it. He doesn't recognize it. He has, he has no clue until they come and they bring him word. Day after day, Mordecai is not bowing. And when he finds out, verse 5, he is filled with fury. Fury, I'll say that again. Fury. 
That one you guys know how to pronounce. So, and when Haman saw Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. Now this anger, it's, it's absurd. It's, it's ridiculous when we look at it. He, he hasn't even noticed without being told that, that Mordecai is not bowing. Moreover, he, he's, he's not satisfied with just laying hands on Mordecai. As we see in that next verse, verse 6, the ancient enemy would be dealt with once and for all. He would seek to destroy all the Jews right, throughout the entire empire, which is the known world at the time. Verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Oh, he's a Jew? Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hazarus, Xerxes. So I say this is in line with uh, uh, the same thing that King Xerxes would do. This is absurd, right? His behavior towards Vashti, removing her as queen because she refused to come, that was... That was, that was an overreach. That was ridiculous. It, the crime didn't, the, the, the punishment didn't, didn't match the crime at all here. She won't come to his drunken, stupid request, so she must be removed. Oh, and so that, that all the other wives won't find out, we're going we're gonna to send a decree telling them that they need to obey their husbands and submit to their husbands, ensuring that everyone finds out. We don't want them all to find out what Vashti did. So we're going to send out a decree so that they all find out. Like it's, it's, that's where the kingdom's kind of laughable. Because all the women throughout the whole empire now find out what Vashti did. I think it's funny. You, you apparently do not. That's fine. We have different senses of humor. I get it. So this anger is a terrible master. Anger is a terrible master. So is alcohol, apparently, as we'll continue to see. This anger leads to these absurd overreactions. Whether it was, it was uh, King Xerxes with his, with his drunken stupor trying to make decisions, or this anger here, right? His anger leads to lies, it leads to deceits, and it, it becomes this murderous anger. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that anger in your heart, is anger towards somebody, is akin to, to murder. And First John uh, which we studied last fall, we'll see this in, in 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Anger is a terrible master. Look what, look what happened. One man, Mordecai, he doesn't bow. Now an entire race must be destroyed. This enmity is ancient. It goes back generations. It reflects that demonic enmity between humanity and, and the Satan. Right, so, so what are the, the details? How is this going to be carried out? Like we're, we got to put some thought. we got to bring in a council. There must be some, some type of, of thing that, that we work out to, to how this plan goes into place. No, no, this is how absurd it is. He, he leaves it to chance. He leaves it to superstition. They, they roll, literally roll the dice. In the text you'll read purr. They would call it purr. And, and this is the, the roll of chance that chooses the date that the people of God then are going to be annihilated. Right? We'll later see that, that Pur becomes that basis for the Purim, a holiday celebrated by the Jews to this day, where they remember what God did here in, in Esther. I believe this year it's like March 16th. If my memory serves, somebody can, you can, you got Safari, you can, you got Siri, you can, you can Google it, but um, that, that's what they celebrate to this day is, is what happened in, in Esther. So Purr is that roll of dice. He, he leaves this, we're going to annihilate God's people. What date should we choose? Oh, I don't know. Let's leave it to chance. Also, certainly another coincidence, another quinky dink that the roll of the dice gives 12 months 
for these reversals that we're going to see, these turnarounds that we see as God is at work throughout the rest of Esther. So think about it this way. Who's really, who's really in control of that dice roll? We see throughout Scripture, even God's people at different times would, would trust the decisions by essentially rolling the dice. They, most recently in the, in the New Testament, we would see that they would replace Judas for one of the 12, and they would, they would leave it to, to chance. God, what are, you, what are you doing, this guy or this guy? Let's roll the dice. It is now today that we have the spirit of the living God on the inside of our chest. You have Jesus on the inside of you if you're a believer. He's, the Holy Spirit is leading and he's guiding and he's directing and he's helping. Right? He helps us to make those decisions. But here Haman, he goes before the king with the, the, result, the results of this uh, roll of the dice to present this plan. We pick it up in verse 8. Then Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among all the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. So a little bit of that is true, but see what he's doing. He's, he's leaving it a little bit ominous. I'm not going to tell you they're the Jews. I'm just going to tell you there's, well, there's a certain people. They're scattered abroad. It begins to sound a little bit dicey, a little bit dangerous. They're, they're dispersed among all the people in all the provinces. Of your, they're everywhere, these people. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Still, a true statement. And they do not keep the king's laws. Okay, now he's, he's just outright lying. They don't keep the king's laws. Esther is literally queen because she obeyed the king's command. Mordecai is, is one of the king's servants that has been faithfully living under the king's command. They obey the king's laws. So, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Listen, you don't want to keep these people that are everywhere around. They're different. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. That's, that accelerated quickly. These people are everywhere. They're a nuisance. They're not, they're not going to keep your laws. They're a danger. Let's destroy them all. And I'll pay. I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have the charge of the king's business that they may put into the king's treasury. Now this is going to sound pretty great for Xerxes because if you remember, he just threw that Lavish party a few years ago, right? Six months, gold and silver benches, purple curtains, like all the food and the drink. You can drink at your, your compulsion, right? Like he, he spends a lot of cash on this to get people to go to war to fight the Athenians, right? Like his, his, his dad got defeated, so he's going to be the one to, to enact revenge. So he spends all that money to show the people how powerful he is. He gets them to, to go to war against the Athenians and he gets his butt stomped. He, get, he got defeated. Can I say that? He got, he got defeated. I'll, I'll just put it, put it that way. He gets defeated and so now his, his funds are a little bit depleted. So here Haman's like, hey, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put the money up. So the king takes off his signet ring from the hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite. The author is sure to let us know. The son of Hamadatha, the enemy of of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. How flippantly this decision is made to annihilate a whole people group. Then the king's scribes summoned on the 13th day of the first month an edict according to all that Haman had commanded. And it was written to the king's satraps and to the governors of all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples 
to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. This is going everywhere. This is all encompassing. Nobody's gonna be missed here. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet rings. Verse 13, the letters were sent by couriers to all the king's promises with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. So everybody, Jew and non-Jew alike, is finding out about this as it goes to everywhere. Verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. How do you celebrate a decision that was so flippantly made, so flippantly planned, but you sit down and celebrate with a drink. There's a lot of drinking in Esther. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Imagine the king and Haman are, are celebrating with a drink. Meanwhile, outside the citadel in the city of Susa, people, they're bewildered. They're confused. The Jews had enemies for sure, but they'd been living peacefully, serving in the king's court. They'd been, they'd been uh, set free by his grandfather to return to, to Jerusalem. and they're, they're not only serving in the king's court, they're as close as the queen herself. And this decree is, is met with confusion. They don't understand. Remember, this is an absurd overreaction. The people, they're confused, they're hurt. They're trying to wrap their mind around it all. This time next year, the Jews are going to be annihilated. This time next year, for the non-Jews, our friends, they're going to be killed just for being Jewish. The confusion is about to spread throughout the entire empire at a quick rate. So think of the questions. For the Jews, we thought we were living peacefully. We, we'd been given our freedom by King Cyrus, and, and some have even turned to rebuild the temple. Where is God? Are we his chosen people? Think of the questions that they had. So we fast forward to another city. It's been left in confusion. People are, they've been left to wander. What in the world is God doing? They thought they knew what God was doing. They thought that he was the one. They thought he was the Messiah. They thought he was the one to bring deliverance and salvation. The one to rescue. The prophesied one to, to redeem Israel. The oppressive Roman rule was supposed to be overthrown. The city of Jerusalem, it's left to, to be in confusion. It was thrown in confusion by the crucifixion of this Jesus. God seemed now hidden. God would seem absent. Where is he? The city had just went from the triumphal entry of Jesus where he would ride in on a donkey and they were throwing down palm branches and they're throwing down their clothes in front of him and they're hailing him as, as the king. Like they're looking to him to be the, the deliverer. But Jesus rode in and he was betrayed. That week he'd be arrested. He was beaten, he was bruised, he was put on trial and he was crucified. They're confused, they thought he was the one. They would now watch as, as Jesus is, is buried and he's sealed in a tomb and it's now Sunday and it is, it's been three days. 
a couple of his followers, if you'll turn to Luke 24, a couple of his followers, they're, they're headed out of town, right? It's, it's, this is too much. Most of his followers are, are, are hiding. They're scared. These two guys, they, they've got to get away from it all. So many of the others, they're, they're, they're scared. But Cleopas and this other close follower of Jesus decide, we've got to get out. It's too much. They find themselves on, on the road to Emmaus. Jerusalem has been left bewildered. It's been left in confusion. And they just have to, to get away from all. And they, they've got plenty right, to discuss. And they've got plenty to talk about on their, on their way. And they're talking with each other. And, and what happens? Jesus walks up. Remember the, the dead guy? The text tells us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You could say Jesus to them was hidden, but not absent. Jesus proceeds to ask them what they're, they're discussing as they walk. And we pick it up in verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Or what have you been living under a rock? Like, don't you see the cities in confusion? And Jesus said to them, what things? Jesus plays all coy. What, 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 what things? And they begin to describe to Jesus about this, this Messiah, perceived Messiah and, and who he was, that he was mighty in, in word and deed. And they describe him now as a prophet. We hoped he would have been the Messiah, the redeemer of Israel, but he, alas, he's, he's dead. But it's been three days, so for the Jews, he's now dead, dead. Three days was significant for them. So verse 22, moreover, some of the women of our company, they're saying, amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us, this would be Peter and John, they would go to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So Jesus responds to, to Cleopas and, and this other one. He, he begins to open the scriptures to them, beginning with Moses and then all the prophets. And he shows them where the Christ was, was hidden in the scriptures. And all this time, how his, his suffering was actually necessary. It had been foretold. See, they, did, they didn't expect, they didn't anticipate the Messiah coming to die. They wanted governmental overthrow of Rome. They wanted a different kind of Messiah. And we read that these two, Cleopas and the other one, quickly reduced Jesus to a prophet, just a good teacher. Because Jesus did, in fact, suffer, and he did, in fact, die. And that's not what they were looking for. No longer do they call him Christ, but they spoke of him as a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And we can, you and I, we can, if we're not careful, limit, reduce Jesus in our own lives when he seems hidden. When he's not showing up like we think he should. He's not showing up like we want him to. Maybe he has good teachings, right? Or maybe he, he's, he helps me to be kind or it's kind of a get out of hell free card. But when Jesus, for these guys, when he didn't end up being the Messiah they were looking for, they limited him to a prophet. Don't limit Jesus in your life when he doesn't show up the way you think he should. He's either all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, everywhere, who can 
move mountains and do anything or he can be reduced to your version of what you think a Messiah should be. For these guys, no longer was he the one to redeem Israel, but they created a Messiah that would, that would fit their desires. The deliverance that they wanted. But Jesus came, he came to defeat the real problem. So God doesn't change just to fit into our mold, our time, right, our culture. He doesn't change to fit our picture of what we think he should be. From the beginning, there's been this enmity between Satan, the serpent, and the woman and her seed. This, this ancient enmity would culminate in Jesus defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. It goes all the way back to Gen- Genesis 3 where it said this would happen. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus, the Messiah, the one to redeem not only Israel but the entire world. He's been hidden but not absent throughout all of history. We find him hidden but not absent, working in Esther. Let God be God. Take him out of our box. I can promise you he's never failed you. I can promise you he has never let you down. He's never left you. And if, if you feel like he's failed you, if you feel like he's let you down, it's because it it wasn't him you were looking for. It was, it was, it was something other. And I, I, want, I want Jesus not to be limited by, by my mind, by what I want him to be, what I think he should do. I don't want to limit who Jesus is. I don't want to miss him because I've reduced him to a prophet, to a good teacher. So now here, these guys on the road to Emmaus, they're, they're frustrated, they're confused, they're hurt. Jesus was great, but he's not who they, they want him to be. He's not the Messiah they're looking for. And as they walk, he's hidden from their sight, but he's, he's not absent. And so they draw near to the village, and as they're stopping, they urge him. They urge this stranger to stay with him. Verse 29, but they urge him strongly saying, stay with us for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with him, and when he was at the table with him, he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were immediately opened, and they recognized him. It's Jesus. So he stuck around. And he vanished from their sight. Listen, these guys, they don't even wait till morning. Jesus is gone, Jesus has vanished from their sight, but he's still present. They jump up and they return the entire way back to Jerusalem. Right? Their mission now is to tell everybody, no, this is the one. He's not just a prophet. He's risen. He's the one. This Jesus, who we hoped was the Messiah, is in fact the Messiah. He's the one we hoped he would be. He had, vision from their, he had vanished from their, their sight, but now he's not absent at all. This is not the last time Jesus would do this. Remember when he, right before he ascends into heaven, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. And then he disappears. Hey, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. And then he's gone. What? 
Remember when Jesus said, listen, it's better, guys, that I go away. He's telling them the whole time that he's going to have to suffer and die, but they never really want to hear it. And connected to that, he says, guys, it's, it's better that I go away because I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. So now we don't have the person of Jesus walking right next to us. Right? At most, he, he taught 5,000 on a hillside. Now each and every one of us across the globe, the entire known world has Jesus inside their flesh. He's living on the inside. I'm not gonna quote a song roaring like, I wasn't gonna do that. Remember he says, it's better that I go away because he's sending the Holy Spirit. And Esther got his present. On the road to Emmaus, God was present. In your life, in mine, God is present. The two on the road, they would say in in verse 35, he was made known to them by the breaking of bread. In a few moments, we're going to do just that. We're going to remember communion. Their, Their minds would immediately go to that last supper where Jesus would take the bread and he would break it and say, this is my body broken for you. His body hadn't been broken yet and they wouldn't fully understand it. But he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. Right, then he would take the cup and this is my blood that's been poured out for you. They'd been celebrating Passover as as a good Jew would for generations. They'd been breaking bread and they'd been drinking the cup they've been breaking bread and they've been drinking the cup. The next year at Passover, they're breaking bread and they're drinking the cup. And the whole time, Jesus has been hidden only to be revealed at the Last Supper. We said, this, this whole time, this has been an example of me, that it's my body that's gonna be broken for you, that it's my blood that's gonna be shed for you. Listen, it, it may feel like I've been absent this whole time, but I've been present throughout all of history, working, because the whole point is redemption. I'm working to redeem the entire world, not even just the Jewish people. He is the redeemer. Jesus has been hidden, but he's always been present. Redemption was always the plan. His life for your life, for my life, was always the plan. Do you you feel like he's been absent? I want to promise you he's ever present. If you seek him, you will find him. How can God be working in this circumstance? I don't know what your circumstance is. But I've had that question before. I know that you probably have that question right now. How can God be in the middle of this? How can he be working through this? And just like in, in Esther that we're going to see in the coming weeks, there's some divine reversals that's going to happen. And he, he's, we're going to see him on every page, even though he's not named once. He's working. He's hidden, but he's not absent. The tension now in Esther is here. The decree has been sent out. The annihilation of God's people looms on the horizon, but God's not wringing his hands. 
God is not wondering what he's going to do. He's not worried. And in your life and in mine, he's not worried. You can read ahead in, in Esther. I'm already probably spoiled too much, but guess what? He turns everything around. God's going to use any situation, any circumstance, and he turns it around for good, for his glory. Romans 8, 28. Maybe it's your favorite verse. After today, maybe it will be your favorite verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He's hidden, but he's not absent. He's working. He's ever-present. And he loves you. And he's for you. Would you pray with me today? God, there's so many times where we don't see how you're going to move and don't see how you're going to work. And, and we even look to, to the answers to say, oh, this must not have been God. We don't let you just be who you are. And we want to put you in boxes. God, would we, would we just blow up our boxes today? Let you be all-powerful. Let you be all-knowing. Let you be ever-present in our lives, recognizing you. God, that we wouldn't reduce you to a prophet, that we wouldn't reduce you to a good teacher, but we would let you be the Messiah. Let you be the one to redeem not only us, but our families and our communities and our church. God, would you come? Would you move? God, for those of us that feel like you're absent right now, we feel like in our situations, we can't see you moving. We can't see you working. We don't know what you're, you're up to. We don't see how you could turn this around for good. You may not have caused this, God, but what are you gonna do with it? Look at these pieces. I don't know how you're gonna put them back together. God, would you help us to trust you with our lives? Would you help us to trust you with our eternity? Would you help us to not limit you and who you wanna be? Would you allow us to open our minds, open our hearts, God, see you moving and working on the inside, living on the inside of us. God, would you shape us to be the, the, the powerful representations, the powerful ambassadors of the risen Christ that we are, that as soon as you, our eyes are open, God, that we would run to tell he is risen. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He's the one that we've been waiting for. God, help that to be our response. God, would you open our eyes this morning? God, would the scales fall off? In Jesus' name, amen. Is this morning now, if you would take out the cup. Thank you. And we remember in communion, as they did with the Passover, as those Cleopas and his friend, that their eyes would be open the moment the bread was broken, that we would see Jesus taking the bread and breaking it and saying, this is my body that has been broken for you. I've been, I've been hidden in this. There's been a plan. I've been working. I have not been absent. I've been hidden, but not absent. So today, Jesus, we remember your body that was broken for us and we take and we eat this bread that represents him. Lord, it was then that you would, you would take this cup. And you would say, this is my blood that is poured out for you. And they wouldn't understand it then, but we see now that you've been, you've been hidden in this, this, this representation of you 
since the Passover, that it would be your blood that would redeem us. It would be your blood that would save us. It would be your blood that was shed for our salvation. So God, we take this now knowing what it, what it really represents and seeing that you have been hidden in this all this time, but not absent. And we take the cup and we celebrate. God, it, redemption was always the plan. My salvation was always the plan. Your life for mine was always the plan. Eternity was always the plan. God, we thank you for that. And our response now is to, to worship, to honor you, but also like those two on the road to Emmaus, our response is to go and tell he is risen. He is the one. He's not in that tomb. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the redeemer of your soul and mine. Would you stand with me as we worship this morning? Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you. 